able to speak directly to us. Lord, you tell us that your spirit speaks through your word, opens our mind to the truth. And Lord, we pray even as the prayer is given in, in the book of Psalms, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things from your word. So we pray today that you would speak to us, Lord, that your words would be spoken, not mine, and that uh, our hearts would be soft to receive your word, and it would bear fruit in our lives, bring change and encouragement. We pray for this today in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, we're going to be in John uh, 21, but like I said, Matthew 26 to start off with. We're going to start in verse 31, and uh, if you are unfamiliar with what's in John 21, the reason why we're reading this is, is there's a lot of context that happens before John 21, and if we don't understand some of that, uh, John 21 will be kind of uh, a little confusing. So we're going to read, and it's going to be a little chunk of scripture, okay, uh, a, a good chunk. So I encourage you to have a Bible out. If you don't have one, there are some Bibles in front of you, uh, in the seats in front of you, underneath, and the page number for those Bibles is actually on the screen for our passage in John 21. It's not on the screen for Matthew, and if you need that, it's 1536. Um, yeah, so... Let's read this together, and then we'll uh, dive into our text in John. Then Jesus said to them, speaking to the disciples, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther, fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to his disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, O oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, and he went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whoever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. From the other gospel accounts, we know this is Peter. But Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, 
For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? How then could the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. And those who laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard. And he went in and sat with the servants to see what would be the end of this. Now, the chief priest, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none, even though many false witnesses came forward. They found none, but at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, do you answer nothing? What is this that these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, He is deserving of death. Then they spat in his face and beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one that struck you? Now Peter sat outside the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him, saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, This fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. Then he began to curse and to swear, saying, I do not know the man. Immediately, a rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the word of Jesus, who had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. You're welcome to turn over to John 21. In this passage we just read, uh, it's a very sobering uh, text to read. In it we see the great love of Christ, the perfect love of Christ displayed uh, dying for guilty sinners, for people, even his own disciples, who should have been the most loyal people, abandoning him uh, and disowning him, and then people doing vile things to him, uh, the very people he came to save, spitting in his face, slapping him across the face while he's blindfolded other gospels, let us know, slapping him across the face and saying, who hit you, who hit you, right? We, we see a, a, such a tragic moment the, the depravity of mankind to, to be doing such horrific things to the Savior who came to save us, the, our Creator whose breath is in our lungs. And you see the great love of Christ and the great love of the Father that sent His Son even to suffer those things when Jesus said He could have changed it in a moment. He could have asked for the angels to come and boom, everybody's wiped out. So you see the great love of Christ here. Um, and it would go on if you continue to read that passage where things, the abuse would continue and he would suffer and die at the hands of, of evil men 
him being innocent. But he was no victim. But in it, it's also sobering to just read the, the, uh, the turning away of his disciples, the deserting of his disciples, and in particular, Peter, who Jesus warned, hey, you're going to do this. And he's like, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. And, and he does. He denies Jesus. And uh, just as a quick side note, um, what we see Peter doing and what we just read is a great recipe for falling into temptation, for giving into temptation. I mean, you look at the things that Peter does in this passage, what does he do? Jesus warns him, he ignores the warning, right? Jesus is like, hey, this is coming, and he's like, no, 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 right? And, and beyond that, he's in self-confidence. He's like, man, I got this. Like, Jesus, these other guys, they might betray you. I'm never going to do it. I'm never going to desert you. I'm never going to deny you, right? So he has a self-confidence, and then he's sleeping when he should be praying, right? Jesus invites him, hey, watch and pray. Your spirit, you know, the spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. Don't be relying on yourself, right? And it will fall in those same footsteps of given into temptation if we're walking that way, right? In this w- disregarding Jesus' warnings, walking in self-confidence, uh, right? And uh, neglecting to walk in prayer and dependence upon the Lord. Um, but it is, it is a sobering moment. Luke's account puts it even, uh, I think, uh, uh, just even a, a little bit more sobering, um, Jumping right into it, somebody has just asked Peter if he's, he's with Jesus. And Peter said, man, I do not know what you are saying. And it says, immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord. How he had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. So... Luke lets us know something that Matthew doesn't, right? He's like, hey, wherever Peter was at in this courtyard, he was able to, to see Jesus, right? And as, as, Jesus, as Jesus is on trial, Peter, Peter is, is, is looking on from a distance, and he's being questioned, and he's denying the Lord. On the third time, Peter, Peter denies the Lord, and... This is what happens, right? The rooster crows. Jesus looks at, at Peter, and Peter just, his heart melts. He, he's full of, of sorrow and shame for his disowning of his Lord, right? He had lived with Jesus for three years, seen Jesus do incredible miracles, walked with him as a, as a friend and as a disciple, and in Jesus' greatest uh, hardship in this earth, right? Peter just disowns him. And, and the emotion just overcomes Peter to where he takes off running. And I don't think he's necessarily running because people are questioning him. I think he's just running be, out of uh, shame and, and, and overwhelmed with grief. And just he's, he's broken in this moment. I mean, the, the word that is spoken here he says it wept bitterly, right? It has this idea. It's just this sobbing, uncontrollably sobbing. It's not just a couple tears. I mean, this is a grown man who was so confident, you know, throughout so many times and, and prior to this, and, and then you just see him broken in this moment at his failure. Um, and no doubt in this moment, like Peter's thinking, everything's over, everything's hopeless, right? Like, Jesus is about to die. I've betrayed Jesus. You know, I did exactly what I said I wouldn't do. And, and, and it would seem that, that Peter is just feels incredibly hopeless at this time. Um, we're going to get to our text now in John 21, and before we do that, I just want to fill you in on a couple things that happened from what we just read in Matthew 26 to where we're at in John 21, and uh, one of those things is this trial continues. Jesus is crucified, right? Willingly dies for the sins of the world. He's buried, and three days later, he rises from the dead, defeating sin, defeating death, He's now, in our gospel uh, of John, he's now appeared to the disciples at least two times, right? And each of the times he appears to them, he says, peace be unto you. But now in our chapter, we get to see, uh, we get to see Jesus uh, specifically reaching towards Peter and, and seeking to restore him. 
and uh, really a cool, cool section. So let's read verse 1. It says, After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, also the Sea of Galilee. It's where he had told them to go. And in this way he showed himself. Simon Peter called the twin, um, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. So seven in total, six others, including Peter. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we are also going with you. They went out and immediately got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. So Peter decides, man, I want to go fishing. And uh, the other disciples are like, all right, sounds like a great idea. Now, some people wonder, okay, is this Peter going back to his old life, right? Because when Jesus first approaches Peter, he's a fisherman, and Jesus says, hey, from now on, you're not going to be fishing for fish, you're going to be fishing for men, right? I'm calling you to fish for men. I'm giving you this new calling in your life. So some people wonder, okay, is this Peter going back to his old life because he's like, man, I feel like a failure. That's possible, right? I don't think the text makes that clear. It's possible. Certainly many Christians over the years have probably had those types of feelings and, and uh, in, in, as they're facing their failures and thinking maybe I should just go back. Um, however, I don't think the text is clear. It's very possible that they just wanted to go fishing. I mean, it's pretty enjoyable, right? How many of you guys like to go fishing? Anyone? Only like three people like to go fishing. Okay, that's what I like to see. All right. So, yeah, it's very possible they just wanted to go fishing. Now, they did not want the result of <laughs> what takes place. They fish all night, and they catch nada, right? Now, that's, that's a bummer. <laughs> How many of you guys have, have spent like a day fishing and caught nothing? Anyone? I've done that many times. Uh, the only thing that, to make that worse is when you have somebody come from a distance and, hey, how's it going? You catch anything today? And at that point, you're faced with either telling a lie or admitting your failure as a fisherman. <laughs> um, and, and to add insult to injury, it would be uh, for that person to say, hey, you know what? Maybe you should check your, your fishing line, right? Make sure you got some bait on there. Did you try that yet? Um, those sorts of things happen. It's kind of funny because that's kind of what happens here with Jesus. The disciples don't know that Jesus is the one about to talk to them. Um, so Jesus comes up from a distance. Jesus says to them, children, have you any food? Did you catch anything? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the other side, the right side of the boat, and you will find some. <laughs> oh, really? Just six feet over here? You know, we haven't been out here all night looking for fish, but yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Um, they don't know it's Jesus. They just think this is some random stranger telling them, giving them this advice. But they do it. Um, and maybe they're starting to recall because years ago, right, three years ago when Jesus called them originally, something very similar happened. The, the, the writer of our gospel that we're reading, John, is going to, kind of have a, a recollection of that moment here in a minute, and that's kind of why we know that they're, they don't know who the stranger is on the shore at the moment. It says, so they cast their net, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, which is a term that John used of himself as he was writing this gospel, which is a really good example for us, as believers, we should, you know, identify ourselves as, hey, I'm a disciple that Jesus loves, right? Our identity should be found in our relationship to him and his love for us. And uh, so it says, the disciple whom Jesus loves said to Peter, it is the Lord, right? John remembers what happened before. He's like, oh my goodness, Jesus did it again, right? It is the Lord, now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and he plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in a little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits away, dragging the net with the fish. 
Then as soon as they came to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish had been laid on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. So we see Peter, he's super excited, right? Jesus is, is there in the distance, and John lets Peter know, hey, this is, this is Jesus. And Peter can't wait, you know, two minutes, five minutes for them to row into the shore so he doesn't have to get soaking wet, right? He, he can't wait two minutes, five minutes. Peter just jumps in the water, fully clothed, goes to Jesus, and comes a soaking mess to Jesus. And I think it's just a beautiful uh, space where we get to see a little bit of, of Peter's heart in this moment. He has such a desire for Jesus. He has a desire to be near to him, to, to, to have that relationship and to walk in that relationship, to be close to him again. And, uh, and Jesus says, hey, bring some of the fish that you, you've caught, right? So Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And there were, and although there were so many, the net was not broken. So Peter seems to be a pretty strong dude. He's carrying about 300 pounds of fish probably, dragging it up to the shore. And uh, it, it is uh, funny to note that they, they put the exact number of fish they caught, 153 fish. And, uh, you know, there's been people over the years that said, well, you know, the reason why they, they wrote it was for some spiritual reason, right? The, the number has some spiritual rec- uh, meaning. Um, I, I don't think that that is the case. Um, I think the meaning is quite obvious, right? These are fishermen, and they just caught 153 fish. Of course they want the millions of people who are going to read the Bible to know what great fishermen they were, Right? <laughs> Right? Any fishermen out there? We caught one this big, right? Uh, okay, maybe, maybe not, right? They clearly give the glory to God, which in and of itself is a, a testimony to the truth of the Word of God. Of what fisherman gives credit to somebody else? I'm just saying, right? Okay, a little bit of a joke there. But um, it is crazy, right? That in this moment, like they weren't expecting this, Jesus shows up and... He can make the unexpected happen, right? They weren't expecting this. And it's a crazy moment and a moment that the disciples remember forever, right? John's writing this years down the road, and he remembers this with crystal clear detail, Jesus meeting them on this shoreline. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, Come and eat breakfast. So he prepares a meal for them. The resurrected Savior takes time to to prepare a meal for them, to fellowship with them. It says, Yet none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them. And likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Verse 15, so when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. And uh, some people, you know, wonder what is Jesus referring to when he says, hey, do you love me more than these? And some people have thought, well, maybe Jesus is talking about the fish that they just caught, right? Talking about the nets, talking about the boat, saying, hey, do you love me more than your old life? Do you love me what you, you know? Um, so that's a possibility. Though, t- uh, to me, that doesn't seem the obvious one from the entirety of the gospel accounts. Because what we just read in Matthew, Peter had self-proclaimed, hey, I love you more than the other disciples. I'm more devoted to you than the other disciples, right? Because in uh, Matthew, I'll put it on the screen for you, Matthew 26, um, Peter said to Jesus, hey, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. And Jesus goes on to say, yes, you will. And Peter goes on to say, no, I'll die before I do that. And 
in this moment, Peter saying, hey, I love you more than the other guys, right? And, and so now after this moment, Jesus comes to Peter and he, he gives him a, an opportunity to, to see, is that really the case, right? Simon Peter, do you really love me more than these? Um, and if that's what Jesus indicates by that, this, it would seem that Peter has become a little bit more humble in his estimation of his love for Jesus. Because he's going to answer Jesus three times the same way, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, right? But he doesn't answer that last part of the question, do you love me more than these? He doesn't say, yes, Lord, you know that I love you more than them. He just says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And, and it would seem that even through this um, time of, of failure in Peter's life, he is learning uh, humility. He's learning, okay, you know what? It's not the wisest thing to think I'm better than everybody else, like I'm a messed up sinner in need of Jesus to save me. And he, in this moment, simply just says, yes, Jesus, you know I love you. And one other thing in that is he bases this upon Jesus' knowledge, right? He says, hey, I do love you, and you know that, right? Now think about it before when Jesus says, hey, you are going, you're going to betray, you're, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter says, no, you're wrong, right? I know better in this moment. You're wrong. I'm not going to do it. In this moment, now Jesus asks him, do you love me? And, and Peter Peter relies on the Lord's knowledge. Peter relies on the Lord's omniscience saying, you know, Lord, you know that I love you. Instead of saying, uh, I know better than you as he did before. Jesus then asks him um, a second time, do you love me? And this time he drops the added part, right? He doesn't say, do you love me more than these? He just simplifies the question and says, do you, do you love me? Plain and simple, do you love me? Peter's response, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He, he tells him, hey, the first time he says, feed my sheep. The second time he says, look after my sheep. But he asks him, do you love me a second time? Verse 17, and he said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because Jesus had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, some have wondered, you know, why is it at this third time that, that Peter is grieved that Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? And I think one of the very clear reasons is because how many times had Peter denied the Lord, denied that he loved the Lord, denied that he had any uh, relationship to the Lord. I have no idea who you're talking about. I don't know the man. I have no, I have nothing to do with this man, right? Three times he disowned him. Three times he said, I don't love this man. I don't even know him. And now three times Jesus asked, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And that seems to be a, a very uh, probable reason why in this third time Peter's heart is grieved as he thinks of the times that he denied the Lord, as he thinks of the times where he, you know, had said, I will never do it, and then he, he did it. I think it's a beautiful thing, though, the question that he's asking Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Think about the emphasis that our God has on love, right? Our God is love, and he's invited us into a, a love relationship with him, where he says, hey, the, the greatest purpose for your life, the greatest commandment, the greatest thing I want you to walk in as my creation, is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbors yourself. God has made us for love, right? And, and he's calling Peter back towards that. He's calling Peter back to the love that he's supposed to have for him. And giving also, right? It's not a cruel thing that he's, he's speaking this to Peter, uh, bringing up the, you know, trying to, to, to push him down or something. It's, it, he's giving him an opportunity 
He had disowned Jesus three times publicly. He's giving him an opportunity three times to reaffirm his love for Jesus. So it's a beautiful moment that Jesus is inviting Peter into for so many reasons. A second reason uh, why Peter could be grieved is possibly the wording. Um, I am no Greek scholar at all, but I do have a phone with apps, and you can click buttons and see what those words mean. Um, And it is interesting, there are two Greek words that are used, different words for love in this section. The first two times, before I go into it, I will say that some people see it differently. I'm not solidly set on one side or the other, Um, but I do think it's worth at least considering uh, this being something that could be going on here. Um, The first two times that Jesus asked, do you love me? He uses the word agape, which as we think through the scriptures, is so often associated with the love that God has for us and the love that God calls us to have for him. It's a love that, it's the same word that's described in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is gentle. Love is not self-seeking. It's not demanding. It's not impatient or rude. Uh, It endures all things, hopes all things, believes all things. Love never fails. It's, it's a love that certainly doesn't deny, right? It, it, it stays true. Um, this is also the same word that's used when Jesus was asked what's the greatest commandment. He says, agape. Agape, the love, Lord your God, with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So Jesus asks Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me? The first two times, and Peter responds both of those times, Lord, you know that I phileo you, which speaks of an affectionate love like a friendship, right? Which potentially could be a, a lesser sort of love, right? People, like I said, some people debate that because sometimes those can be interchanged, so certainly that's possible. Um, so what, what makes it interesting is on the third time, Jesus uses the same word when he asks Peter the question. He says, okay, Peter, do you phileo me, right? Do you really love me, right? Essentially saying, you just said twice that you phileo me. You just said twice that you love me like a friend. And now he asks the third time, do you really love me like a friend? He uses that word to bring things to, to the level that Peter was describing. Um, a good quote for this is by uh, Henry Alford. He said, Peter in his first two answers uses a less exalted word, one implying a consciousness of his own weakness, right? It's very possible that Peter in this moment is, is much more humble in his estimation of his love for Christ. It's like, it, my love isn't fully there, right? It's not at that full commitment, full devotion that it needs to be, but I do have this love for you. I do have this affection for you, right? But it still had a persuasion and deep feeling of personal love. In the, the third question, the Lord adopts the word of Peter's answer, to closer press to the meaning and bring it home to him, right? Do you really have that love that you're talking about? So that is certainly possible. If that is the case of what, you know, the different words meaning something here, a cool thing to think about is when Peter writes in uh, the, the letter of, of Peter, First Peter, uh, it would seem that Peter certainly came to grow deeply in his love for the Lord as he describes God's people this way. He says, Though you have not seen him, speaking of Jesus, you love agape, right? You love Christ. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So maybe there's something there. I'm not saying that for sure. People see it differently. But it is, I think, worth at least thinking through. So uh, one of the things that stuck out to me as I was looking through this passage this week was what's not here in Jesus' words to Peter. Because I think that uh, if any of us were to fill Jesus' shoes in this moment and have gone through the things that he went through, our discussion around the fire, having breakfast with Peter, might have been a little different, right? It might have been something more like, hey, Peter, do you love me? And him say, yes, I do. And then we say, then why did you deny me three times? 
Peter, do you love me? Yes, I do. So why did you forsake me as I was being arrested? It'd be very easy for us to go there and then say, man, you're canceled. You're out of here. Forget it. I don't want anything to do with you. You, you forsook me in my greatest need. And thankfully, God is not like a man. He's not like us who are so quick to, to hold bitterness and resentment and, and unforgiveness within our hearts. And, and one of the reasons why I was thinking through this is uh, as I look at the world we live in, we're living in a world that, that seems to be coming less and less forgiving, more and more brutal, less gracious. Um, it seems that our world is taking pleasure and in, in, takes more pleasure in canceling somebody than we do in seeking to restore somebody. We're, we're quick to get rid of people and, and think we're so much better than everybody else by casting people aside with no hope of redemption, with, with no offer or, or seeking of reconciliation. And in Jesus' words to Peter, you don't see any vindictiveness in him. You don't see any cruelty or hatred. Simply Jesus reaching out to Peter to, to bring him back to the right relationship with, with Christ. And, and God warned us that in this world, these days would come, that we would live, as this world, the scriptures say that this world is under the sway of the evil one, right? Satan is having his way in the lives of unbelievers. He's blinded their eyes so they can't see the gospel, the goodness of Christ, and they're going about doing the things that he, his desires are, things that are wicked and evil. And, and God warned us that in the last days, it would become more and more, the heart of mankind would become more and more like the wicked one and less and less like our God. First Timothy, Second uh, Timothy rather, puts it this way. Paul speaking to Timothy says, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, trash talkers, right? Without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but not denying its power, and from such people turn away. God just warns us, hey, this is, this is coming, right? As the world gets further and further from God, the heart of mankind is becoming crueler and, and more unforgiving and, and prideful, thinking we're better than everybody else. This is, uh, this is why it's very important for us as God's people um, we, we've got to have God's mindset in this world. We've got to look at him instead of being dominated and controlled by the way the world is going. Um, just imagine if Jesus was a proponent of cancel culture. Peter, canceled, right? The disciples, canceled. Everyone in this room, canceled, right? We're done. No second chance. No grace. No hope for restoration. You're toast, and yet, some people think of God this way, and they really do, right? They think that God is just looking around every corner, trying to find people as they're falling and failing so he can crush them, right? So trying to find people so he can sentence them to hell. They think this is who God is. God makes very clear this is the opposite of who he is. Peter, who we're talking about this morning, would later, later in his life would write in Second Peter, it says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise to return, right, and to restore the new heavens and new earth. As some understand slowness, the reason why he hasn't come back yet is not because he's lazy. It's not because he's just like, oh, you know, I'll get around to it, guys, when I feel like it. Gosh, right? Instead, it says, instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God's heart is not to, to, to destroy people. God's heart is not to condemn people. God 
wants people to be restored. Now, get me right, God's very clear. If people reject him and reject the restoration he offers, they will be condemned because they're rejecting their Savior. They're rejecting their only hope, right? And they will be punished for their sins. But think about it in, in one of the most famous verses of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish, would not be destroyed, but have eternal life. And the verse right after that, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, is this the message that people hear from, from the church in, in our country and around the world? I hope, right? But I think sometimes we get so blinded that, you know, we can make everything about politics. And, man, you, whatever side you're on, you liberals, man, there's no hope for you guys. You guys are a lost cause, right? Cancel them, right? Forget about them. I don't care about them because they don't agree with me. When God's heart would be, <laughs> pray for those people, right? Long for the restoration. Whoever that would be, people on the right, people on the left, wherever people are wrong, we all need a Savior, Jesus Christ. He came to save us from our sins. He did not come to condemn. He came that we would have life. But think about it. If, 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 if we're walking in that mindset, Paul the Apostle would have been canceled, right? God would have canceled him. Like, this guy is fighting tooth and nail against God, slandering his name, fighting against the message that his people are bringing. God didn't give up on him. In a moment, in one day, he changes his life, restores him, and uses him in a mighty way to change millions of people's lives so that they could know about the hope of Jesus. We should never give up on other people. We should always pray for other people as the Lord has called us to. Another scripture that would speak to this reality of God's nature, Ezekiel 33, it says, Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? God, again, just making very crystal clear, I, it doesn't make me happy when people die and go to hell because they reject me, because they live in sin that I have no pleasure in that. My desire is that they would turn from their wicked ways, find life in me, and live. And this is who our God is. And so it's vital that we understand who our God is, what his heart's desire is for this world and its sin. Otherwise, it's so easy for us to um, just totally neglect people groups because we're like, you know what, they're lost. I'll cause. I don't have time for them. Right? I'm not going to waste my breath praying for them. What did Jesus tell us to do? Pray for our enemies. Love them. Do good to them. Because he loves everyone. But this also goes in regards to our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's so easy for us to say, you know, so-and-so, they sinned against me. So-and-so, they spilled their coffee on me last week at church. Man, what a jerk. Or, you know, whatever it is. Usually it's probably not something like that. Usually it's they said this about me, and you know what? I'm just done with that person. Fed up, right? God calls us to show grace and mercy to one another. Think of what Peter wrote. He says, above all, have love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Peter understood it, right? He understood the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that was shown to him, right? The love that was shown to him, he didn't deserve it. But Christ freely gives it to him. And then it, we need to apply it to ourselves too because it's easy for us to fail and then to get stuck there, right? God's done with me. There's no hope. I can't move forward. I'm just going to stay here because, man, God's done with me. There's no hope for my life. I've, I'm a failure. God cannot use me any longer. Certainly at one point or another, Peter had this thought maybe here or, or before, where he's like, I've ruined my chance. I denied Jesus three times. How could I ever be an apostle of the Lord? How could I ever feed his sheep? How could I ever be used by him again? But what does the Lord do? Provided grace. Peter wrote it this way. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. Why? So that he might bring us to God. It's the heart of the Bible is God seeking to bring people back to him. 
being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Peter understood in a very personal way, hey, Jesus, the reason why he died, he died for our sins. He did it so he could bring us back, to restore us, to bring us back. And I love how personal it is when we read the gospel accounts and we see what the disciples later wrote in their lives through the letters they wrote. We see how very personal they took their Lord and Savior. Like They realize, I'm a guilty sinner and I need saving. Right? He's my hope. He's my life. He's my righteousness. Peter put it this way. He said, he, Christ himself, bore our sins. He carried it in his body on the tree on the cross. Why did he do it? That we might die to sin, be set free from sin. It's penalty and it's shame. And so that we could live to righteousness. How were we healed? By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like straying sheep, but you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. As I think about this, Christ, Christ did not come into this world, humble himself, become a man, become a servant of all. He did not come into this world and become a man that the scriptures would describe as a man of suffering, acquainted with deepest grief as he looked upon the brokenness of this world and it crushed his heart, it broke his heart. You think of the times where he wept at, at, at Lazarus's uh, funeral, even though he knew he was going to raise him, he, he weeps, is broken over the, the tragedy that sin has brought into this world. He, he, he didn't go through all of this. He didn't take the, the, the hatred, the scoffing of, of mankind, the, the crown of thorns being beaten to his head, the slappings, the spittings, the ripping out of his beard, the denial and the nailing of his body to the cross, his lifeblood being poured out of him. He did not do this so that those who call on his name could continue to live lives that are marked by sin and shame and defeat, right? He came to set us free from our sin. He came to set us free from our shame. So as the scripture said that he wanted to give us a a clean conscience, right? He wanted to make us right with him, to be at peace with him. He he didn't come in this way uh, for our lives to be uh, marked by these things, but to be set free from these things. Now, very clearly, this is not a promise for your best life now, right? Um, As some uh, false teachers would proclaim, right? God is very clear in this world, we will have troubles. Following Jesus does not make us healthy, wealthy, and wise necessarily, right? He, 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 it, it doesn't just work that way, right? In this world, one day, everything's going to be set straight and perfect. But he says, hey, we could have hope if we put our trust in him. And we could be set free from our sins. We could be set free from our shames. Uh, our shame uh, As I was thinking through this, just thought through an experience I went through as a younger believer. I experienced a a failure in my life, and that started becoming an all-consuming thing where I was just thinking about it all the time. Thinking, you're such a failure, you're such a failure, to the point where I started thinking, man, it would be better if you just weren't alive. It would be better if you were dead. And that was just playing over in my mind, over in my mind. It was a dark season, and the Lord graciously brought me to read Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, which drew my eyes back to him, which says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice, and I just felt the Lord stab me in the heart and say, You know what? Get your eyes off of yourself (laughs) and put them on me, right? You're not the Savior. I am, right? You are a stinking sinner. That's true, but I died to save you, right? Get your eyes off of you and get your eyes onto me and find your joy and your hope and your, your assurance in me. And so, brothers and sisters, I encourage us, if that's where we're at, take your eyes off yourself. Put them onto Christ. He's our Savior. He's our life. He's our hope. He's our peace. And I love the heart we see of Jesus in regards to this whole falling of Peter because even before Peter fell, Jesus was planning his restoration. Jesus even spoke his restoration over his life before it happened. In in the Gospel of Luke, it's put this way. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. He wants to destroy you, but I have prayed for you. I prayed that your faith would not fail ultimately, right? That you would not end in in a, a shipwrecked faith, but that your faith 
would continue even after failure. And he indicates the failure here when he says, and when you have returned, right? You're going to leave me for a minute, right? You're going to miss the mark. You're going to abandon me. He says, but when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. When you have returned to me, I I have a plan for you, right? And I'm going to bring you back, right? Even before Peter messed up, Jesus was planning the restoration. And we see the heart of our God who he is exactly what he said he is, the good shepherd. He looks after his sheep. He doesn't let one of them out of his hands, right? We're secure in his hands. And so he called them back to repentance, called them back to being made right. Um, And that's what we see even here, just the grace that he gives Peter in this moment. Michael puts it this way. Who is a God like ours, like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over the transgression of the remnant of your heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will trample our iniquities. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea and you will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Lamentations put it this way. This I recall to mind and therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. To the soul who seeks him, it is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. What should we do if we find ourselves in a situation like Peter's that we fall, we, we stumble, we fail, we, we sin against our Lord? The Bible is very clear about what we do. Pastor Jim has, has recently been covering it. If we say we have no sin, we're a liar, right? We deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we will admit the truth, if we will confess our sins, agree with God saying, I've sinned, I've sinned against you, I'm wrong, forgive me, right? If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us of most of our sins, right? He doesn't say that. He says, forgive us of all of our sins, right? Forgive us of all unrighteousness. Cleanse us of all of that. That's what he, he offers us, right? And so if we find ourselves in that space where we're consumed with our shame, we're consumed with our guilt, God is saying, hey, confess your sins. I died so that you could be free from this. I died so that you could have a new start and have a new start, right? He's the God of second chances, the God of third chances, fourth chances. Just turn to him. And then when we turn to him, we need to believe it, right? We can't continue living, you know, we ask his forgiveness and then continue thinking, oh God, I just, uh, I'm so sorry. I just, uh. Like, if we've asked for his forgiveness, he's forgiven us and we have to believe that. What does the scripture say? As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Do we believe that? He's cast it into the ocean. He doesn't see it anymore. Think about it. He doesn't bring it up to Peter. It's been dealt with, right? Peter confessed his sins. He, 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 he's repentant of his sins he's turned back to jesus jesus doesn't rehash it here he just says hey do you love me yes all right i've got something for you this is what's next go feed my sheep go take care of the flock we got to believe it god calls us to believe it first uh, uh uh paul would say in romans 8 there is therefore now no condemnation no guilt for those who are in Christ Jesus, we are forgiven. We're made new. Let's continue. Um, the end of verse 17. Um, Peter responds to the Lord's questions, do you love me? And he says, you know all things. You know it. I rest on your knowledge, not mine. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And then Jesus gives him an amazing promise of something to come. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. 
This he spoke signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. I never really thought of it this way until I was listening to some pastors and commentaries and uh, thinking that even though maybe Peter doesn't get it in the moment because we'll see, he's got some questions, but eventually he's going to get it. And this would be a great reassurance to Peter and his faith because what had Peter just done? He had denied his Lord under the pressure of the possibility of death the possibility of being crucified. He's like, I I deny the Lord. I don't even know you. I don't even know you. I don't even know him. And now Jesus has restored him and he gives him this promise. Hey, in your old age, you're going to die. You're going to glorify me in a martyr's death. And it seems very clear from the the description that it, it speaks of crucifixion, which church history would let us know that Peter was crucified upside down. He didn't want to be crucified the normal way in the same way of his Lord, and he said, crucify me upside down, I'm not worthy. Um, and Jesus tells him, hey, you're going to be faithful to death, right? What a promise that, what a reassurance that was for Peter to know, hey, Jesus has promised me he's going he's gonna to sustain me to the end. And Peter has learned something by now, right? He, he's not in this place of like, I got this, I'm going to do this, Jesus, I've got this all figured out, and I can do this, you don't need to help me, right? Because that's what it was before. You're going to deny me, oh no, even if everybody else denies you, I will not. And now he realizes, hey, God, you are my hope. You will be the one who helps me to do this thing. And uh, I think of the way uh, Paul put it. He says, our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He says, hey, God is faithful. He will sustain you to the end. And that was a promise Jesus has given Peter, like, hey, you're going to be sustained to the end. You're going to be faithful to the end. And I'm sure that as the years went by and Peter started to understand that a little bit more, that became such an encouragement to him to know, hey, God, you're going to give me the strength to finish my race well, to not deny you, to finish loving my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But he realized it wasn't because he was some great person but because he had a great Savior. As uh, John Newton famously put it, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior, and he is able to carry us to the end. Our failures, they are something, right? They, they are worthy of shame. They are worthy of being canceled. But Christ's love and Christ's sacrifice, his saving grace is greater still. And if it's not clear enough, Christ once again gives Peter the familiar, familiar call that he once gave him, follow me. And Peter does. Peter does follow him. We know that from the book of Acts and other things. Um, he does, in typical Peter fashion, ask the question that everybody else is thinking but doesn't, isn't brave enough to say out loud. Verse 20, Peter turning around, is following Jesus, turns around from Jesus and looks at the other disciple. Saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, once again that's John, who had also leaned on Jesus' breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter seeing him said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this guy? Right? Does this guy have to die a cruel and painful death too? (laughs) Uh, I'm not the only one, right? Uh, And Jesus just puts him on the right track, and it's a a quick lesson that we will easily pull ourselves off the path the Lord has of following him when we start looking and say, what about what they have, and what about what they get? Right? Jesus just sets them straight. He says this, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? That's none of your business, right? You follow me. Then the saying went around among the brethren that his disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but that if he willed for him to remain till he come, what is it to you? Misinformation spreads quickly even among the brethren. So be careful of what we spread and what we believe and what we see and 
share. This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which, if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. In closing, uh, I want us to consider a, a beautiful passage from 2 Corinthians. It says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Christ came to set us free from our old ways, to set us free from our sin, to set us free from our shame, our failures, and to make us a new person with new desires, with a heart of love for God, love for others. And it says, where did this come from? Well, it came from the fact that all you people are such great and wonderful people and you always do the right thing. He didn't say that. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He said, all this is from God. God, this was his plan, right? From the very beginning, we see this heart of God to be with his people. He creates Adam and Eve in a garden, and there's this fellowship between them. Sin messes that up, and God longs to be restored to his people. And now God makes very clear, hey, God is in the business of restoring people. How does he do it? He reconciled us. If we're, he's talking of believers, people who know the Lord. He brought us back together with him, right? We were separated by our sins, and we were brought back to God through faith in Jesus Christ, through the death and resurrection of our Lord as he died in our place. And he gave us this ministry of reconciliation, meaning that he has invited us to be a part of, of what he is doing. He's inviting us to say, hey, to the people outside, people that don't know the Lord, to say, hey, God loves you. God wants to be reconnected to you. God wants to forgive you of your sins so that you can be with him forever. He goes on to say, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We've been trusted with this message. It's been given to us. It's, it's a responsibility. Therefore, we are Christ's, we are Christ's ambassadors. Right? We are representing God in this world. Making his, his, God is making his appeal through us. So realize this. We are representing God in this world. And, and what is the God that we're representing? It's the God that we see throughout the heartbeat of the scripture, a God who longs to be restored with mankind. In the garden, you see it, what God longed for, and it was broken by sin. God promised of a Messiah who would come to bring a way for restoration. In the end of the scriptures, we see God fulfill that ultimately where he says he creates a new heaven, a new earth where righteousness dwells, and then the beautiful part, no more tear, no more death, no more suffering, but most of all, God will live in this city with his people. They will be his people, he will be their God, and he will live with them forever. We will live with him forever. Right? When I was younger, I always thought God was all about, don't do this, do this, don't do that, don't do this. And it was just this lifeless thing for me. And it was miserable. And as I read the scriptures, I come to understand that is not what God is calling us to. God is calling us to be saved through his son so that we can be with him forever, being delivered from our wickedness brought into the righteousness of Christ so that we can be brought back to God, reconciled. That's the message of the scriptures. I think of what Thessalonians says, that the reason Christ died, it says Christ died so that whether we're awake or asleep, right, whether we're here on earth or we've, we've died and gone, he says either way, the reason he died was so that we could live with him forever. That's God's desire is that we would be with him. He would be with us. He loves us and he wants us to love him and be restored to him. It's the message of the the gospel. That's the message of God's word. And so tonight, or this afternoon, I don't know where this finds us. Um, maybe you're here and you do not know the Lord. And God's word to you today would be, be reconciled to God, right? Come back to God. Right now, you're separated from God. You're under his wrath because 
judgment is upon you. Your sins uh, cannot be in the presence of God. And if you die in that state, hell will be your destiny. Separation, you'll choose to be separated from life, all that is good, all that is pure, all that is lovely, to be separated from light and outer darkness. You'll choose for that. But he doesn't want that. He doesn't want anyone, even the most wicked person, to perish, but that they would turn and live. So if that's you today, God is inviting you. Turn from your sin. Repent of them. Put your faith in Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. God will forgive you. He'll come to live inside of you. You will be reconciled, and he'll change your heart. Give you a heart of love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And if you know the Lord here today, and maybe you've fallen recently, or maybe it's been a long time, but you're still living in this defeated life of shame and sin, Christ is calling you out of the grave, right? He's already conquered the grave. You don't belong there anymore, right? We belong with our Lord and Savior. We belong in the victory that is His, right? Not because we are worthy, but because He is worthy and He's paid the price. So seek out His forgiveness and then walk in what's ahead as He invited Peter to. Feed my sheep, right? Walk in the next thing the Lord leads you to. Um, and then do what God says, we're reconcilers, right? Share this message with those around us because every person in this world needs desperately to be reconciled. Um, we're going to take a quick moment to pray and then uh, worship team will lead us in uh, closing song. Lord, uh, we thank you for the great love which you have loved us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You longed to be in a restored relationship with us. We see that all throughout the scriptures. And Lord, when we are humble enough to rightly look at the situation, it's mind-blowing. As the psalmist said, what is man that you're mindful of him? When I look at the stars, when I look at the creation, this massive, complex, beautiful thing that you've made, you're huge, why would you think of us? And yet you think of us. And not only do you think of us, you sent your son to save us from our wickedness, from our despising of you. You, you sent your son to save us and to redeem us. Lord, help us to live as people who are grateful for your redemption. Help us to live people who are not defined and stuck in sin and, and shame and failure, but Lord, walk in the newness of life that is in Christ. And Lord, if there's any here who do not know you, I pray that you would work in their hearts and draw them to life in you. And we pray for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. What a beautiful message. You may not realize this, but uh, we're all in the same boat. We're, we're a bunch of sinners. But God has made a way to help us be restored to him. And